Hello and welcome back to the Event Lab podcast, your window into the events conversation. This week, we're finishing off our focus on engagement, innovation and technology with a look back to Event Lab 2018, where Lauren Perkins and Kevin Jackson had a fireside chat about the Internet of Things and smart devices. There's lots of opportunities for us to use in-person experiences to understand our customers that we don't always take advantage of. Then it's over to our recent Event Lab series event at Camden House for the highlights from our panel discussion, cost-effective ways to personalize the live event and surprise your audience. It's something that differentiates the event from somebody else's. It's something that identifies your brand, um, not only to your client base, but also to the people that work with you um, and for you. Um, and there are many different ways in which to make that possible without spending a huge amount of money. But first, out of the frying pan and into the firefest, is Ja Rule considering another event? Love on the conference stage. One in seven people apparently find love at B2B events. All that and more, along with some questions from the audience, as Charlotte Gentry, Martin Fullard, and Ed Poland are joined by Natalie Davies, the event project manager at ITV Experiences, for the News Digest. Evening, everyone. Evening, Ed. Hello. How are you all doing? Great, thanks. We have Charlotte Gentry from Pure Events. Hello. Hi, Charlotte. We have Martin Fillard, editor of Conference News, just in from Confex. Yep, I'm knackered. (laughs) (laughs) And good evening. We have a pod debut. We have Natalie Davies from ITV Experiences. Hello, hello. First podcast. First ever podcast. How are you feeling about it? Hot. It's quite toasty in this it's pod. It's quite warm in here, just to clarify, that's why I'm feeling. It's lucky we've both turned up in our bikinis. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got some more crowdsourced questions from social media for our panel of events experts here. Uh, good questions, we will get to those. We've got a couple of stories from the events news too. Starting with one in CNIT that said, I was a bit surprised by this, one in seven people have found love at a corporate B2B event. Is that... I think that's a huge stat and very impressive. And I'm slightly disappointed that I didn't or Did, haven't. It's a bit late for me now. Because, were you surveyed on it? Did they ask you? Uh, no, well, no, but um, I, I, no, I never have, no. sadly. Same with me. We're obviously going to the wrong events. Well, clearly. We? Or we're just not drinking enough <laughs> <laughs> when we're there. It's a magical stat. I love it. Mindful, lad. Have you ever found love at a, a corporate I'm a respectable married man. <laughs> Did you meet your wife at an event? No. Oh. No, that was at a pub. <laughs> uh, as you'd expect. That could be an event, I suppose. Uh, you know, I found, you know, love of drink at events, or certainly the thought I had. Uh, but that's probably about as far as it goes for me personally. So 60% have made friends at business events. I buy that, yeah. What about this room? We all, I mean, that seems reasonable, right? Yeah, 100%, definitely. I, I met all of you three at an event. Yeah, yeah that's, absolutely. Not, that's something I would agree with. It's a very friendly industry, though, isn't it, really? We, we had that conversation, didn't we, about um, you know being tactile in, in the events yeah. industry and whether you... Touchy-feely. Touchy-feely, and we kind of agreed that you know the touchy-feely tactile industry, but don't go too far. <laughs> One in seven have gone too far. <laughs> and then you find your worst enemies. <laughs> of socialised late into the night with other attendees. I don't doubt that for a minute. You should have been at the exhibitor party after Confex on day one. 
It's like the last days of Rome up there. It was horrible. Oh, wow. The things I've seen. You were going pretty strong after Event Lab last time, Martin, from what Absolutely. I remember. You, got, you know, you've got to go in hard, haven't you? hundred percent. I mean, my team were going at it until quarter to four in the morning in Madeira last night. Getting them back on the plane was a bit of a challenge today. Were you in Madeira last night? Yeah, was. Wow, yeah. you look great. Thanks. And that's why you're still wearing your bikini. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 18% have missed an early morning session because you, they were out too late socialising with other attendees the night before. I have actually had clients before that have missed aircraft um, because they've been out socialising and failed to get on the plane to their own event because they've been socialising in the industry. I like how we're describing it as socialising. Yes, you're exactly. Just absolutely on the lash until about <laughs> five in the morning. <laughs> this isn't the point of these events, right? What, what do you guys go to, to, to corporate events for? I mean, obviously, business networking, what else? Lar- well, lar- largely networking, I suppose, knowledge. Yeah. Knowledge is a big one, isn't it? I was going to say that. I think events are all about sharing, isn't it? Whether that be sharing content, sharing business messaging sharing experiences, sharing new knowledge, like you said. It's about connections and, and So I always think that the best conversations do actually happen in the bar after, you know, mm. whatever event you've been to. It's like, you know, Confex over the last couple of days, brilliant, lots of people walking around the show floor, exchanging business cards and deals mm. and so on. But when you meet someone at the after party, something like that, you're at the bar having a drink, you know, you touch on common ground and the common ground can, you know, lead to a, you know, a very valuable relationship. So they're just, they are an important part of the event process in whichever uh, paradigm that is uh, but you know of course you have to accept that some people are going to wake up with headaches from time to time and if you miss a session so what that's part of the fun and makes a good story later unless you are a keynote speaker and you leave a room full of 100 people sitting there in front of an empty stage yeah <laughs> listeners get in touch with us let us know have you ever have you ever fallen in love at a corporate event and maybe one podcast in the future will get the best stories together we'll get them on and we'll hear all these beautiful <laughs> stories of... they might have fallen in love for the night rather than long term they might have done. Yeah, I'd be interested <laughs> to see that stat actually. Taking How many actually stay together? Down, down a very dangerous. dangerous. Here. Yeah, could that be an event lab exclusive? Probably not one we want to we want we want to go down. By far the most requested story to talk about this this week. I think everyone's talking about it. Um, it's uh, it's the news from our our favourite rapper Jar Rule <laughs> that there might be a fire festival part two. Should this be allowed? I, I'm honestly speechless so am I. by this. I mean, I, I I can't quite work out at what stage you, you realise... You love this fire, fire Oh, festival. my goodness. I, I mean, I had to put a pillow over my head to watch it. Um, I was just astonished how the events producer was still sitting there on the day of the actual event. I mean, I, I would have irrespective of what money I might have lost at this stage in the game, walked off the court a long time ago, or off the beach, as it was. I, I, I think there's a maybe a bigger PR game at play here. Did I just steal what you were going to say now? Yes, I think I did. did. All right. But I'm, <laughs> I've started now, so I will finish and do chip in. Uh, but I think that there's a greater PR uh, game at play uh, obviously, the first one has become a documentary, hugely successful, and Fire Festival has become the world's most famous festival. <laughs> Doesn't matter if it's a disaster; all publicity is good publicity. Mm. So what? The next one, if it's even worse, so what? That's a really successful Netflix <laughs> documentary. You know, make a laugh out of it. And if it's a, if it's a success, then well, it's a success. 
Well, who's he aiming at, though? Who is going to turn up to Firefest 2.0? Press. You know what? I think I would buy a ticket now to Firefest. Yeah, I mean, I'd sort my there, own accommodation right? out. Yeah, I mean, I'd definitely sure. be sorting out my own accommodation. <laughs> and I'd definitely be sorting out my own flights. Yes. <laughs> you know, Jarvis claims that he was scammed and he lost money through his involvement with, 20, with 2017 Fire Festival. He said, I too was hustled, scammed, bamboozled, hoodwinked, led astray. Poor Jarvis. I know. I mean, we should have sympathy, right? Yeah. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> but it is, it's that classic case of over-promising, under-delivering, isn't it? And I think, to your point earlier, the event producer sat mm. there and still went through with it. There must have been a point at which that everybody thought that it would just happen because there is that belief in the industry. We're up against such severe deadlines and we always do pull it out of the bag and everything always does happen. And I think everyone collectively probably just thought, oh, do you know what? It will happen. But and I, it I, just, I just can't work out whether it was sheer stupidity or whether it was genuine belief that it would actually work because if you've got half a brain in the industry you'd know that there's just no way it could ever have worked in the first place anyone thinks they can be an event manager oh you know i planned someone's party or something like that it's like i think we all know in the industry that no it's not just a game for anyone you've got to have half a clue at least about mm. what's involved yeah i feel like obviously it's ridiculous and fire festival 2 is ridiculous but you know you, is it just there's a huge discrepancy between i mean obviously it was a disaster on the day but it because it had been so well hyped, it was almost like the contrast was was kind of so extreme. But you can't blame them for hyping it really, really well. Probably better than any event recently has ever been hyped. They can't be blamed for, you know, generating all these ticket sales and and all this and all this interest. I, I guess they just where they got it so wrong was that a lot of the hype was about the lifestyle of of them enjoying this fantastical life. That, that that they were perceived to be experiencing with these models and these yachts and and this is you too can have all of this and you too can buy into mm. <coughs> this kind of a life and um and that's um fraudulent sort of exhibitionism in 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 my book if you can't deliver it mm. yeah i think you know, social media influencers are coming into this as mm. well and you know a lot of them like even what's her name one of the many several thousand kardashians was even one of the mm. people uh pushing this yeah. oh you know oh cool oh. <laughs> uh but you know even they're involved and it's like do you know that the, i mean it's an instagram post or whatever it was mm. are you as the user aware that she was promoting this i mean where is that on the advertising spectrum you know so, you know, it's a bit of a can of worms opened here as well. Jarrell says, I love how people watch a documentary and think they have all the answers. Oh, my God. I love how people make a, an amazing ad video and think that they have all the answers. So, Charlotte, you're going to work tomorrow. Mm. Phone rings. Mm. You pick it up. Someone says, hi, it's, it's, it's Jar here. We'd like you to be involved with Fire Festival. Like, Jar who? <laughs> Mr. Rule. Mr. Rule, he wants you to be involved with Fire Festival Part Two. What, what, what are you going to say? I mean, what, what are the, a professional like you, someone that knows what they're doing? You got Jar Rule with all his followers and all, all his hype. You could make an amazing Fire Festival Part Two, and, and I guess I could, anyone I that actually does it properly, it could be the best event ever, no? Uh, potentially, but not in the Bahamas. Mm. It would need to not be in the Bahamas. It would need to be on solid ground, and it would need to be somewhere that's feasible. And we would give him those destinations and say, right, you've got a choice, mate, of A, B, or C. You know, what? I think we should be positive about fire too. I think, you know, all this ridicule. 
I think it might be the best event ever. Yeah, I won't be going. <laughs> I still haven't actually seen the documentary yet. Just for put that oh, out there. Please <laughs> watch it, Martin. Yeah, it's, it's do you know what? I think wonderful. they should show it to every event management student totally. in the whole world because yeah. it is literally such a case of. It illustrates what not to do. Mm. Everything not to do. Yeah. yeah. Okay, we're going to move on to some questions from from the audience. We've got some really good questions here to, to get kind of to get stuck into. So we've got a question from Esther Frankel, who is a customer operations manager at Apply for Technology. Um, and Esther has asked, "What is the biggest change you've seen in the events world?" She doesn't give a time a time period, but I guess in your time working in events, which combined many years, um, biggest change. I would say probably there's been a quite a massive consolidation of um, of agencies um, in the industry over the last five years or so um, of um, big agencies buying um, creative agencies and the whole creative element and experiential um, aspect to events has been a huge pulling card for a big M&A scenario going on um, within the sector. I would say that's probably been one of the biggest changes. Um, of uh, of companies having to work out what their offering is going to look like and and diversification. Diversification and ITV experiences. I mean, you're right at the forefront of, of this, Natalie. What's um, what have you seen? No pressure. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think to build on what you've just said, experiential. I've seen a massive, massive change in what audiences want, and it kind of coupled with a, a surge in you know people being very, very conscious of you know sustainability what they're eating authenticity across the board I feel that you know we've had to respond to that as event planners and we've had to get into that mindset of a moving audience and I think it is all about experiences now Mm. completely people create memories at events it's not just about speakers it's about the hands-on experiences that they're having I, I think that the actual identity of the events industry has become more apparent and in actual Mm. fact it's actually not say overtaken but certainly on a par with the traditional advertising uh, industry where actually the it's, it is the experience that is now the marketing and the event I mean 10 years ago the events industry not many people would even accept that was a thing that existed but now it is a clearly defined industry and very much in some cases leading the way above the advertising industry. Mm. I mean it's a fundamental part of any brand marketing strategy right these days yeah and the, and the live comms element to what we do is a is a um is a fundamental part of that um and the messaging behind um the events being produced and the strategy being a fundamental element to um to the planning process and you know really having to look at it from a marketing perspective rather than just producing events and 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 not really having a strategy behind them so the strategic element is 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 very very important and actually just coming at it from an agency perspective if you don't take that approach you basically get left behind mm. as, much as, if, as a representative of the media do you, do you kind of have meetings where you, you kind of think about you know where you talk about how things are changing how you have to co- kind of cover that in a different way yeah well it's, it's a pretty broad stroke uh topic to be honest i mean you know a lot of people i ask you know what changes have you seen i couldn't chart them all but yeah i think a lot of the a lot of the revelations do reveal the fact that the events industry is now more commonly known to people Mm. and you know the advertising world the traditional advertising world are coming to event companies to help and i reckon that we're actually going to see further consolidation between 
those two entities. And I think within another decade, there won't be a difference between advertising and events. I think they really will become two. One. Well, it's been very interesting anyway because a lot of uh, big ad agencies have actually um, installed their own live um, event agencies within, within the ad agencies. Certainly JWT were one of the first to do it um, uh, as opposed to having to subcontract um, out uh, and, and therefore for the whole thing to be seen as part of the, of the main marketing mix, really. I'm going to move on to the final question. And this is from Katie Boxer, who is a producer at World Media Rights Limited. And Katie has asked, and we always steer clear of the B word on the <laughs> podcast. I'm, I would get... <laughs> so anyway, Katie has asked, what practical steps can London and the UK take to make sure it remains a global events destination whatever happens in the next year and beyond. I have it on good authority from the CEO of UK Inbound. Uh, we were talking about this very thing up at the recent UK Inbound uh, AGM up in Glasgow. Uh, it's, it is going to be about customer service now. Mm. I mean, when people fly into London or anywhere in the UK, the service they have to receive has to be top-notch. Grunting from behind a desk or anything like that has to be stamped out. Uh, and it's still prevailing. You know, there's still a lot of, you know, blank faces sometimes. There's going to have to be a bit of a culture change. We are good at what we do. You know, the UK is very strong in this field, still one of the strongest. But going above and beyond the call of duty with our face-to-face customer service is going to be key. And on top of that, no tourism taxes in cities like Edinburgh. Yeah, Edinburgh's done that, hasn't it? Mm. Yeah, well, it's coming in. It's still it's massively complex and utterly ridiculous, and no one thinks it's a good idea apart from the people who actually had the power to implement it. So no tourist tax, great customer service. Anything else? I think building on what we already do amazingly, we've got a, such a wealth of culture, heritage, fantastic venues. Mm, we should probably have a few more large-scale venues in London, I would say. Um, but it's about, I think, investing in what we're already amazing at, the transport system, I think, is one of the amazing things about London. I think that probably rings true if people are comparing us to other cities. So investing more in, into that and into the good. I think one of our biggest challenges in London um, is the fact that we are a lot of the time priced out. And that's one of the biggest challenges that London faces, that you know everything is significantly still more expensive. And, you know, as, a, as, you know, as an example, obviously Madeira is not, in the same league because it's not a capital city necessarily but it's you know we've just stayed in a beautiful belmond a reeds palace hotel for you know 200 euros a night and you know you can't find that in london in terms of the same quality of hotel for that kind of pricing um and that is a very very big determining factor we've just we found you know you can talk about everything that you can experience for for foreigners in terms of i don't know learning to play polo or you know, um, I don't know, doing a graffiti tour of some description or going to the Tower of London. But at the end of the day, it comes down to money. And if you've got Madrid offering, you know, something still super exciting, but it's a half, but it's half the price, yeah. you you just kind of lose. What are the other cities that are really, you know, playing that kind of great value card and, and emerging as, as, as great great value options? So Spain? Croatia is... Absolutely amazing. I mean, it's a very different product, but there is still a very big cultural um, element to Croatia. Obviously, it's been through the, literally through the wars, um, and um, you know, there's there's a hell of a lot of activities to do there. Um, and we we're, we're actually taking eight hundred people 
um, with t t in September um, to Croatia because the, the level of negotiation, I think, is another big key factor that, you know, you can negotiate with properties in Europe where you just hit a brick wall sometimes yeah, in London. Right. You, you know, you go to... I mean, I'm don't really want to name names, although I desperately <laughs> want to. There's a very big hotel um, that has a bit of a monopoly um, just on the other side of Westminster Bridge. And they're because they look after a lot of award ceremonies and because they are, they basically have a monopoly of 900 to 1,000 people or whatever in that area, they absolutely categorically raise their rates by 5% year on year, irrespective, and they simply will not budge. And as a result, with that lack of negotiation... That poses real challenges for, yeah. for London. So careful on price. There was an Amex thing recently that said London was still named the top city in Europe for events in an industry forecast. London's connectivity, ease of access, kind of what you were saying, Natalie, was underlined. Uh, it's combined with the city's rich culture and heritage, thriving tech, medical, creative and financial industries and its wealth of fantastic venues. Makes London an exciting proposition for meeting organisers. But careful on price and don't be complacent. That pretty much sums it up, yeah. Mm. Good. Thank you very much to Esther and Katie for their questions. Uh, <laughs> listeners uh, can submit questions for next episode uh, through the email address eventlab at com, and I imagine on the EventLab social channels too. Um, guys, thank you very much for your time this evening. Thanks, Natalie, Ed. have you enjoyed your inaugural? It's been magical. <laughs> Well, you're welcome back anytime, particularly if you describe it like that every time. <laughs> and it is cooler now. <laughs> 20 minutes. It went fast. Thanks, Martin. I'm off to the pub. <laughs> to find love. To find love. <laughs> See you all next time. Thanks. Bye. Bye. It's over to the Barbican now as we go back to Event Lab 2018 for a fireside chat between Lauren Perkins from Perks Consulting and our MC for the event, Kevin Jackson, as they take us through smart devices, the Internet of Things, and how we might see those applied in events. Hello and welcome to Event Lab at the Barbican. Uh, we're here again having an amazing day. Uh, Lauren Perkins has just come off stage after talking all things internet. So the internet of things, a big subject for the event industry. And we're just going to have a chat with Lauren now and see where we get to. So Lauren, welcome. <laughs> Thank you. That was a great conversation on stage with the guys. Absolutely. The internet of things is, we've heard about it, we've spoken about it. Just explain to everyone what that is. So, I mean, Internet of Things is all about having connected smart devices. And so, you know, one of the things that I worked on, Birdie Smart Home, um, in sort of the first generation of IoT, was a smart home detector um, that was really looking at how do we make the whole house controllable via a device connected to an app. So a lot of IoT, we see hardware and software integration, which uh, from a technology standpoint makes it an even bigger feat than just building an app because you have to integrate all these things. Yep. Um, but the way that everything is moving with technology to make sort of a seamless experience, um, IoT gives us a lot of possibilities to just make our lives more connected and have technology be a part of the experience, but really more a supplement and support to what it is that we're trying to do. It's about intelligent use of technology that allows us to connect. I mean, I think that one of the things that's, that gets misunderstood is people are like, well, what's the flashiest, newest thing? And it's yeah. like, well, what are you trying to get done? And is there technology that can help us? 
get there, whether it's IoT or AI or blockchain or any other sort of trendy application of, of technology that we can talk about. That's an amazing segue into the bit now <laughs> that we can talk about because the, um, fortunately or unfortunately, the event industry is often asked to find the shiniest, flashiest thing to, to give life to an event. That's probably not always the right way around. Yeah, so I mean, I started my career from a, a retail experience and then community experience background. Yeah. So Nike, Crunch Fitness, um, all about immersive experiences and really bringing that customer brand relationship to life. And I think one of the things that we've lost in sort of this, this age of digital and technology, of which I have you know, really been a part of as a CMO in the tech world, is that we often are looking at the tech first instead yeah. of... What is the, what does the customer need? What does it want? What are the problems and pain points? Yeah. And then you know what are the what are the objectives on both sides of the fence? Because oftentimes the business wants to get something done, but they don't think about whether the customer actually wants it. Yeah. Or the customer really wants something, but then it's like, what's that value exchange? Yeah. So I think there's a lot of different uh, elements that we need to look at in terms of how does technology, both from a software standpoint, from a hardware standpoint, an experience standpoint, yeah. like fit into our everyday lives, whether that's at home or whether that's at an event. I think we've been so, down so many cul-de-sacs. We're hunting technology to do the things that it doesn't need to do. As you said, it's first about understanding what you're trying to do, what business objective you're trying to reach, and then find the technology to support that. Absolutely. I mean, I think the first thing is, is like understanding your customers and the pain. Like, where is the pain felt the most? And I hate queuing at the bank, so um, I want to... ATMs. <laughs> if the ATM was more smart, I wouldn't ever need to talk to a human. Yeah. But I think one of the things that falls short, if you were to think about even just that experience, whether it's in a banking environment or whether you put that ATM in an event uh, venue or experiences, you know, what are you trying to get done? Yeah. Um, and there are definitely some things that an ATM can do that it doesn't currently do that, you know, we definitely could evolve it. Even if that is, you know, fingerprinting at the ATM instead of, or, you know, I think Face ID is probably going to be a little bit further out for that kind of hardware. Um, but we're very used to using fingerprinting from an iPhone per standpoint, from a phone standpoint. Uh, so there's lots of ways of integrating technology in order to add security and also potentially give people more information than they're currently getting at certain touch points. And one of the things that came out is, one of the things that came out strongly in the uh, conversation on stage was value exchange. Absolutely. What are you giving and what are you getting back? And, and I, I think, think it's one of the things that no one thinks about. Yeah. Their businesses look at it as what's in it for me. Yeah. And I think that any business that has that lens on is automatically going to lose with customers. And they may not lose today or tomorrow or next month, but eventually somebody else is gonna see that opportunity they're going to find a way to solve the pain for the customer, and they're going to eat that original, most likely larger company's lunch and yeah. say, well, you didn't actually pay attention to where the pain was. And that's where you see you know, Uber and Airbnb and lots of sort of new solutions and new categories being created because there is significant customer pain that is being ignored by the incumbents that could solve that that pain and don't always. I suppose to that point, the, the, those businesses, Airbnb and uh, Uber, they're smart businesses who've used technology to, as you said, steal the lunch of the bigger 
older competitors, it's not Absolutely. really a technology solution first, it's a pain point solution and then use technology. Absolutely, and I think that those are the types of examples, and Dropbox is another great one, yeah, right? Yeah. Like, very customer-centric. They didn't even build their product no. um, in order to adopt their customers. They built a video um, addressing the pain and then showing the solution and got a very large waiting list of customers lined up before they even had a product, used that to fundraise, and off to the races. Yeah. So there's a lot of ways of sort of using you know, the marketing umbrella of which oftentimes event sits in it and oftentimes event sits in other departments, but from at least the marketing standpoint, there's lots of opportunities for us to use in-person experiences to understand our customers that we don't always take advantage of. And I think the, the event industry is, is a bit judgmental in as much as we tried, we've tried apps. We've tried apps for a long, long time, and the early ones just weren't that good, and we, we seem to have lost a bit of love for apps. We've lost um, the te wristband technology, the... Um, We've, we've, we've sort of we haven't embraced it the way we should and looked for innovation rather than just recreation yeah so I mean I think one of the things that we talked about on the, on the break was oftentimes there is this desire to use a new flashy thing instead of thinking about what is the customer pain point what is the journey and what are we trying to solve for and is the application of technology that we're using the correct one yeah. so a lot of the wristbands fell short um, a lot of the early apps nobody thought about customer experience so if you think about trying to replace an existing experience, if you create so much friction in doing so, people are going to stick with the thing that already exists. The reason that Airbnb, Uber, Dropbox, those types of new technology solutions for existing pain points are because, one, they made them simple. Two, they allowed customers to pull yeah. instead of have to push. Yeah. And they thought every aspect of the experience through on, on every on every standpoint, and I think that that's one of the things where, when we when we see a lack of technology adoption, when we're trying to bring in technology to solve a problem, a lot of it is because we're not thinking about how is that going to be deployed, and is it being deployed in yeah. a way that is going to be very low friction and easy adoption for customers, um, and not just led by the company or by technologists in general. We have to do as much work before we deploy that technology as we do before we employ a new screen technology or projection technology, we think we could just go and grab it off the shelf and it will work. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you think about it, some of the best event experiences that I've ever created or that anybody else that I, that in the industry has ever created, it was all about what is the experience? How are we immersing people? How are they going to feel? Yeah. And I think a lot of times when it comes to technology, um, when we see failures, a lot of that is we, we miss the mark mm. on that, or we didn't think about it. Like we are designing an experience, technology is facilitating it, and I think that that's really the mindset that we need to put on: is what is the experience that we're designing, and then how are we going to make it yeah. happen? Yeah, and to use technology as part of the experience. Exactly. Because the the one thing that we always complain about is people come to an event and they all they're looking at their phones. We don't want that a lot of the time because they should be looking at the. Well, you also want to use it in a smart way. Like the technology exists for us to be able to have prompts for, you know, there are three people here that are, that are like a lot of people in your network that you would most likely love to connect with. Or, hey, did you know that five people in your LinkedIn network are actually here? Yeah. You haven't connected with them in X amount of time. Yeah. Like we have the That'd geolocation information. Yeah. Obviously there's you know some privacy and some security where we have to opt in. But if I've come to an event experience 
whether it's hosted by a sort of industry conference or by a brand, I'm there because I want to be. So give me sort of the, the option to opt in on the things that I want to opt in on. So I have a, a smarter, more engaged experience so that the serendipity that often happens, but we don't always have as much of, we should be able to create so much more serendipity in yeah. physical spaces, whether that's an event, event space, a pop-up, whether that's a retail space, all of this exists. And I think that what we're missing is how do we use the information in a really relevant way? Way in order to in order to add value, like that value exchange that we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. And it's no different than the bots that help with customer service now. It's an algorithm that's talking to you, but somehow you feel connected to the thing. And we've got to build that into these events and take the randomness of connection away from it. Because it's one of the reasons people come to events for connections. Oh, and the connection is super important. I think that also if we think about AI and bots, like you're talking about in terms of customer service. Um, Revolut does a good job with this, where you hit a certain point, like I have a paid Revolut account, you hit a certain point where if the bot isn't giving you the information that you need because your questions are outside of its database or its ability to analyze yeah. with sort of machine learning what it is that you need and want and how to con converse, it says, would you like to escalate to a real person? Type this. Yeah. The same type of thing could happen in an event space to say, you know, go this way to go find a real human being. Yeah. Like, the help desks are here. Yeah. And, and that, to me, it still surprises me that a lot of the event apps, and there are some that are getting much yeah. smarter. Like, you mentioned South by Southwest, and their first app was not anything, no. you know, glorious. But they've, they've really made sort of an investment in what is the experience. And there's so many panels and so many tops and so many different types it's of people there. I remember when I was there in, like, 2009, and the digital uh, South by Southwest was only, like, three or five hundred of us. Like you, you could get to know everyone. Now you've got a couple zeros at the end. So you need to sort of leverage technology, I think, to have the most relevant connectivity. I was there in 2014. It was just enormous. It was just so many panels. You needed the app just to navigate. And I think that some of, especially for something like South by Southwest, and I've spoken there before, and I went very early, I think when you see the progression of it, if you can try to capture the wonderful serendipity and connectivity of those yeah. early years when it's really intimate and use technology to try to recreate that, create those pockets, it's really, really valuable. Some of the bigger events I don't go to anymore if I'm not speaking yeah. because if I have to do weeks of work to set up all my meetings and then there's, there's a lot less serendipity because the type of people that I want to meet when you've got 100,000 people there, it's just, it's much harder. But we can solve the problem. The, the question is, is who's going to start making the investment to, to create that value exchange and then be able to deliver that value? It's funny, as you were speaking there, the, the, it's, there are industries that do it well. So bands, you know, when they're discovered by half a dozen people and then they become global superstars, how do you keep that, those, that fan base alive and active? It's got to be technology driven. Next up, we're at Labs at Camden House for our highlights from the panel discussion about all the ways you can better personalise your event for your guests, improving their enjoyment and their engagement without breaking the bank to do it. Hi everyone. for making it along and any of you that might be watching on the live stream as well. So without any further ado, I'd like to introduce our um, panellists. Um, I'm going to bring Tom up from Accessible Areas, um, who's going to be moderating the discussion and he'll intro you to the rest of the session. Thank you.
And so today, uh, we've got a great um, set of panelists along with us who, um, well, can you all come up now, actually? Why not? We'll uh, introduce ourselves uh, one by one. Hi, uh, I'm Mark Forrest. I'm the art director and production designer for uh, an immersive company called The Department. Uh, my name is Celine Kuo. I'm head of events for a company called Rondo Communications. It's a PR and integrated events agency. Um, we plan a lot of media events mostly and consumer events for our brand. My name is Charlotte Gentry. I am founder and CEO of Pure Events. Uh, Sarah Schilling. I'm the CMO of the Unlimited Group. Um, we'll start with, is personalization a nice to have or a need to have? Pretty critical, I think. Um, it's something that differentiates the event from somebody else's. It's something that identifies your brand, um, not only to your client base, but also to the people that work with you um, and for you. Um, and there are many different ways in which to make that possible without spending a huge amount of money. Yeah, I completely agree. I think that if you consider customizing as part of your overall plan and don't let it be an afterthought, don't let it be a thing that you kind of come around to after your budget's already been spent and after everything else that you wanted to do is done and go, oh, how do I make this special? It needs to be a full part of the whole process, I, sh I, sh I should think. Yeah. Yeah, we work with a lot of clients that almost don't um, think that they're asking for personalized uh, moments within the event, and we actually almost have to tell them back that actually, yeah, this is something that you've asked for, and we can actually make this stronger. It's very personalized, but they don't even realize they're asking for it now. Yeah, I think it's, it's one of those things which you, you absolutely expect to a certain degree, and it's almost one of those things now, when it's not there, you miss it. But I also think there is a danger that we almost over-personalize, and people are a bit, you know, in our whole world of, of data and sort of trying to protect that. It's almost sometimes you feel as though someone might knock on the front door and go, are you coming to tonight's event? And you'd be a bit like, oh my God, you've got my house number. So um, I do think that absolutely it's one of those things which is almost a fait accompli, you have to have it but there's a danger of being over-personalised, and I guess it's that kind of, like, uh, stepped across that you, you have to be aware of. Okay, um, we said we'd go to the audience, so we will. We've got one um, from a Danny Brown, 92. Hello, Danny. Um, what are the be what's the best technologies for personalisation? Oh, gosh. <laughs> I guess RFID really helps with... Um, with the, it's got a lot of scope and a lot of different kind of um, uses, but I remember working on projects where we were trying to find ways to engage people so that when they walk through a particular environment, um, things happen automatically around them that have been sensed effectively by, by what they're wearing or by um, something that they have on them. Um, I don't know how cost-effective that always is, and obviously that means different things to different people, but that's one of the quite kind of exciting ways of doing things at the moment, I would say. I think what's quite interesting um, is um, we recently produced um, an event, um, a client event actually, which was um, uh, looking at um, how people engage with technology versus how people engage with old school sort of analog um, type experiences. And everybody naturally defaults to technology now because they think that technology is going to be the answer to everything. My question back to the audience is, does, is technology the answer to everything? Because actually, sometimes Connect Four and Lego actually do a very good job, you know? So sometimes the simplest things are actually the most effective. And we're so geared now to needing that instant gratification for everything, and we're always constantly thinking that we need technology, when actually, if you put three or four really quite cool games that people haven't played for a long time in a room, what do people gravitate to? You know, can you have too much technology? Uh, can, it, can it get in the way? 
I was going to say, actually, for a client uh, recently, we actually wrote letters to invite them. And I know it sounds really weird and a bit odd, but the actual response we had was amazing. And I know this falls slightly um, in line with the Royal Mail sort of, you know, send a letter uh, campaign. But in all true respects, when you get down to it, sometimes, you know, there's all this tech we can get bombarded with and get carried away. But we sent letters to invite people to an event and they were so overwhelmed and actually you know the results speak for themselves we had the best attendance for our client there and we followed up with a letter and that was personalized from the CEO and I think personalization through a handwritten letter sort of did a lot for us. I agree as well I think that if tech helps you get the data that you need then that's one thing but actually standing out in terms of getting people's attention a lot of the time is better done in, in a more old-fashioned way and I think to your point about luxury market it's definitely a personal, a personal invite, and that will never kind of work in an email form unless you know email moves on, which I'm yeah. sure it will. Um, but to grab your attention and to actually make sure that you've got a tangible memento in a world where we have so much di digital interaction, sometimes it's really nice to have a beautiful object or a beautiful letter land on your desk. And I think that technology can't quite fill that gap in that sense. However, technology can help you do the research you need, really target the consumers that you want to target in a way that makes sense, and that's where I think technology makes a difference when it comes to this. Fantastic. We've got um, some live reaction from the audience as well, um, from Rachel at Wheezy. <laughs> uh, can you expand on inter internal personalization uh, for a company going through a rebrand? There's no such thing as over-communicating when you're doing something internally because they're your ambassadors and they're your allies and they're going to live and breathe that brand. So I think, you know, in terms of um, making them feel a part of it, right at the start, what do you think the brand name should be? What do you think the value should be? What do you think it should look like? What do you think it should feel like? And therefore, as long as they're right at the start of that journey, almost the, it, will, it will carry on you know, itself. And then, you know, it's little things like personalization of when you launch the brand internally, I mean, you know, you, you will know this, everything from like we, we talked about earlier, when people walk in the building, it's not, it's, it, you know, they feel a personal part of that brand evolution and you make that possible for them because they have their name, they have little things that are, are done tailored to them. So bringing in cost, uh, we've actually quite conveniently got a um, question from Higher Space. Uh, Want to know how to wow your guests and create amazing experiences as well, keeping your events cost effective. So, um, you know, what sorts of budgets are we looking at and when, when is too much, too much? We often, you know, come up with these amazing, um, you know, immersive tech options and, you know, we really want to do interactive lighting installations and all the rest. And actually, when you're talking about an event for one night, that money really doesn't go, you know, into something that you can put on for one night. So often we have to pull right back on those ideas, even if the client loves them. But if you are looking at a longer you know, installation of two weeks or something, then actually it becomes cost effective. If it's a ticketed event, even better. But you know, we often find with private corporate stuff that actually you just, just the technology is too expensive. You know, the RFI and all the rest, it's just it's so expensive at the moment. You can, you can also, you know, irrespective of what the budget looks like, if you're, in, if you're clever and you think outside the box, you can produce some really incredible experiences without really having to throw bells and whistles at things. And sometimes bells and whistles, fine, they're great if you're doing a massive live festival for a, for a large number of people. But at the end of the day, you can do something that sometimes the simplest ideas are the most effective. Um, and I think we've become very bogged down in thinking, oh, I've got to, you know, 
chuck something into this that's absolutely no one's ever seen before and it's going to be amazing and you know everyone's going to go wow and you know which is great on one level and that's fabulous if you've got you know a quarter of a million quid to spend but at the same time like most of us in the real world we don't always have those type of budgets to work with so you know if you've you know whatever the budget there's always a way to do something that's going to be a little bit different and going to create that level of engagement it might be something incredibly simple how do i prove roi on event personalization we touched on this earlier with kind of budgets and what have you, but how do you, you know, in, in, in the nitty gritty, how do you actually prove the ROI, or can you? Feedback. I mean, yeah. I think it's probably key number one is actually taking the time to do the surveys, to actually get the feedback, to do the follow-up, follow to do the follow-through. Um, I think surveys are becoming as irritating and as boring as they are when they land in your inbox. I think um, they're very, very important because it's only by doing that that you can actually really understand whether you're striking the right chord, you're always going to get someone that's going to moan. You're always going to get someone that's, you know, um, didn't get, you know, the kind of flavoured drink they wanted. But you know, it's it's the, mo it's the most effective way of understanding, you know, and taking the percentages of um, of those who really believe you did a good job and those who believe you could do better. Yeah, I think that the the point that was just made is really important. The follow up and to echo something that you said earlier, Mark, if you need to communicate with your guests after the event. Mm -hmm there's a need to kind of give them an incentive to come back to you. So again, as part of the planning for your overall event, is there something that they can get from you afterwards? Is there a, bit of, a piece of content that perhaps you can send? And there's loads of kind of ranges, but it might be a song, it might be a bit of information that's going to be relevant to them particularly. It might be that, again, the data that you have allows you to be really concise and send them something that they're interested in, but in return you might be asking them to give you some feedback in order to unlock something. We have a number of programs for some of our clients that just incentivize people to kind of stay on the loop in that conversation with us so that we know we're getting the information we need, but we're also not spamming them and annoying them all the time and we're actually ha having worthwhile targeted communications i think that that can be answered in the way that you plan the post event comes indeed yeah. oh here's a nice one um thanks to jessica andrews um do you find there's a difference in event personalization and interaction for introverts versus extroverts would you take these character traits into your design uh, or innovation process yeah yes definitely <laughs> Got it, Mark. Why? Um, yeah, we work with social media brands who constantly sort of talk about how they have one group of people that come to their event and the other sort of slightly more tech uh, group that comes and they're very, very um, introverted. And consciously, we always sort of design uh, two spaces, minimum two spaces within, within the grand party. Uh, and even like the photo moments and all the rest are slightly different in those spaces. So, you know, some, one has like a big dressing up box and all the rest and, you know, the extroverts get drunk and put on wigs and all the rest and absolutely love it. And actually the, ex they, you know, the, the other group still likes to sort of take a photo or not, but they might not have a big group of friends. And so we sometimes have actors maybe there to help them and, you know, actually coax them along a bit. So, yeah, there is, there is a sort of difference between, between designing that space. I mean, there are quite a lot of instances where one might be designing a... Um, a client drinks reception. Actually, it's one of my biggest bugbears of walking into a room thinking, oh, crikey, where do I start here? You know, from a networking perspective, if you don't know anybody in the room. Um, and, um, you know, and, and producing an event, therefore, where there's something else to engage with is an absolute key. Because even if it's a... Um, it may be a museum space that's only just recently opened or something that's got a level of engagement actually within that, within that space is a very easy way of people being able to turn up, not be concerned that they're not going to have anyone to talk to um, and be able to then 
stand looking at something and talk to the person next to them and say, oh, wow, you know, have you tried this and have you done this? And I think that's the easiest way to get around that and bring people together. Yeah. yeah I went, uh, there was an event recently that we went to and there was a lady at the start of the evening who actually, as you came here in, was lovely and sort of, you know, talked to you, took your details, sort of said, how are you? And then during the talk, like, like it is here, actually said, oh, I'm just going to network a few people saying, you should actually talk to that person, you should talk to that person, you should talk to that person, you should talk to that person. And it was done in such a lovely personal way that she just seamlessly just networked and, and put people together, whereas, you know, potentially those people, to your point, might have just felt a little bit awkward or a bit like, oh, God, you know, what, what do I have to do here? Or, you know, so... And then at the end, also by opting in, they had like their, their Instagram and their Twitter kind of um, handles there. So she said, look, I'm putting them here. They've opted in. If you want to connect, these are all the handles. So people just took pictures, again, going back to the, the power of social media. It can work in a way of, it's your choice, but if you don't want to meet them now, if you're a bit of an introvert and this feels a bit awkward, just take their handle and just sort of, you know, um, on Twitter or whatever, link in with them, link, you know. So that was quite a nice way. Okay, um, and how has um, social media, have you used it or have you seen it used at events um, to attract people both pre and post event? I think the documentary on Fire Festival is a very good example of how things can go hideously horribly wrong, um, but how social media can be the most effective it can ever be. But um, amazing how, you know, the level of influencers and the level of, you know, um, social rubbish um, that you can spout will actually be able to deliver that level of momentum. Um, it's amazing the fact that just you know, beautiful graphic design, that one yeah. orange square yeah. was enough to yeah. create that buzz. I mean, it's, it's crazy that we live in that world that actually that is all that we buy into or you know, some people buy into and it just hits off, the numbers hit off one, yeah. you know, um, it's crazy. I think the social media campaigns that really will resonate increasingly as we talk to an audience that's more and more familiar with how that works and younger people nowadays have grown up using social media their whole life, so they have a slightly different approach to it than yeah. I do. They see through brands talking crap far, far quicker than perhaps older generations might. And for that reason, the need to really elevate the conversation, create conversations that really matter, is paramount. We're talking to some of the clients we have about whether or not you know the influencer model is going to last for much longer and what happens afterwards and encouraging them to engage with people in a much more organic way. Not everybody's willing to um, listen to that and kind of um, talk to kids for free about things that they might do. But I personally really think that there's a future in fostering those really organic and authentic <coughs> relationships because kids see through what, what happens. It's their world and they understand it in a way that, you know, we can't quite keep up with sometimes. And there's a whole back, well, I say backlash about influencer marketing, but you've seen the headlines and like you say, you know, kids moved on from Facebook to Twitter to Instagram, there'll be a next thing and a next thing and, you know, everything has to be now paid for or sponsored by, so to your point, absolutely. Again, that scepticism filter I was talking about earlier is only getting a little bit deeper <coughs> until sort of something else comes up. Um, so, yeah. Now, this episode marks the end of our content focus on engagement, innovation, and technology. You can find a summary of all the content we've done on the subject in the show notes below. For March and April, our new content focus will be leadership, professional development, and culture, beginning next episode as we chat to Mark Roost, public speaker and founder of The Unconventionalists. As always, you can find links to everything mentioned in the episode in the show notes below. 
you enjoy the show, make sure to rate us on iTunes or your podcast app of choice. You can follow all that we do on Twitter and Instagram using the handle eventlab underscore online. If you have any questions you'd like to submit to the News Digest or you'd like to get in contact with the show, you can email us at eventlab at Thanks very much for listening.